Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the Old Testament, to 2 Samuel 23. Well, the song that we sang, the challenge, comes from the... Really, we see that armor of God in Ephesians. I want us to consider this morning an example or several examples of that being in practice from the Old Testament. 2 Samuel 23, if you're using the Bibles there in the chairs in front of you, it's on page 230. I want us to consider David's mighty men and the challenge we can have from them, the example, to take a stand and be courageous in a wicked world. Initially, the authors of the 1980s commercial jingle thought it would be a one-time thing. They never anticipated that the song would span two decades and become one of the most iconic and lasting jingles in retail history. It received somewhat of a resurgence a few years ago when the business that it represented filed for bankruptcy and announced that they were closing their 800 stores in America. The song longed for endless childhood and abiding adolescence. It said, I don't want to grow up. I'm a Toys R Us kid. They've got a million toys that I can play with. I don't want to grow up. Now, I am sorry to put that in your minds for some of you. (laughs) The lyrics were less militant than the statement that Peter Pan had taught his devoted followers when they sang, I won't grow up never going to be a man. Now, while our millennials may have never been exposed to those tunes, you, along with the rest of us, have certainly been exposed to the sentiment of perpetual juvenility, of the abhorrence of adulting in our society, the attitude, I'm never going to be a man. And while our culture, culture is struggling today to determine what is a woman, the corollary question is, what is a man? And the difference between men and boys is is much more than the price of their toys. That's actually simply denoting boys with bigger bank accounts or maybe greater financial obligations. But there's a difference between a man and a boy and really a mentor or a mighty man. Now, boys tend to be identified with chaos Men assume responsibility and strive to bring order, but boys are takers, consumers. Men ought to be givers and providers. And a mentor is one who takes responsibility both for his own personal maturity and his influence, the stewardship of influence, on others. He's a person who's committed to God and to others and motivated by love for God and a love to advance the cause of Christ in the lives of others. And in both 2 Samuel 23 and 1 Chronicles 11, we find a list of men that are designated as David's mighty men. I believe they fit that category of those who are striving to influence others in the right direction. They're marked by Scripture as mighty men. And I think they give us an example that if we're going to stand for Christ in a wicked world, there are some things that need to be in place in our our lives. If you have your Bibles open, follow with me. I'm going to begin reading in verse 8 of 2 Samuel 23. 2 Samuel 23, beginning in verse 8. 
These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Joshub, Basabeth, the Tecumonite, chief among the captains. He was called Adino the Esnite because he had killed 800 men at one time. And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo or Dodai, the Atholite, one of the three mighty men with David when he defied the Philistines who gathered for, their, for battle and the men of Israel retreated. He arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to plunder. And after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herorite. The Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. So the people fled from the Philistines. But he stationed himself in the middle of the field, defended it, and killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. Then three of the thirty chief men went down at harvest time and came to David at the cave of Agilom. And the troop of the Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephim. And David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem, that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. this is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things were done by the three mighty men. We'll stop our reading there this morning, though the list continues and the examples continue through the, the remainder of the passage. You know, I've briefly differentiated between a boy and a man, but what would it take to distinguish a mighty man? I mean, what does it mean to be mighty? The idea really speaks of great power, of skill, of, of being strong in the examples we have of those who are strong in the Lord and courageous. There is a need for that in our day. There's a need for boys to grow to men and men to commit to step forward, to the, step up to the spiritual plate and stand for the Lord. And what I want us to consider this morning is that a, mighty, a man who is mighty for Christ will stand in a wicked world. I don't think any of us doubt the wickedness of the culture around us. But what does it take to stand? You know, we're introduced to these men here in 2 Samuel. These, this, this passage is actually at the end of David's life. These men were, were part of David's special forces. I mean, they were, they were his Navy SEALs or, or Army Rangers, whether it be the, the Delta Force or the Green Berets or, or maybe to keep the geographical context, the Israeli Mossad. But they, they were the men that David relied on. They're mentioned here at the end of his life, but in, in, in 1 Chronicles 11, the same list is given, and it's at the beginning of David's reign. It's when he assumes the kingship over Israel, these men are listed. They're referred to as the 30, though there are 37 names listed. And, and we're going to look at this. Now, that's understandable because when one would die, somebody else would take their place. 
David was using them. They were in leadership. These were his, his commanders, his generals over the army. And this morning, we're going to look at verses 8 through 23, but beginning in verse 24, we have other names provided, and both the first one and the last one, beginning in verse 24 and at the end of the chapter, were men who were killed during battle. Asael was the brother of Joab. He was also the brother of Abishai, who's mentioned in verse 18. Well, he was killed, and his death is recounted in 2 Samuel chapter 2. And the last one of David's mighty men that is mentioned is Uriah the Hittite. And most of our, us are familiar with his death. We know him as the husband of Bathsheba. But he was one of David's mighty men. Now, before we jump into the, these individuals, I want to give just a couple of general observations. One is, these men were from various backgrounds. Now, a number of them were from David's tribe, but not all of them. In fact, in, this list includes Gentiles. They had different strengths, different abilities, and I think it's good for us to realize that because sometimes we think, well, you know, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, or I didn't go to a Bible college, or I didn't... God uses people from different backgrounds with different strengths, different abilities, but willing to trust Him. We also see that, that these men face difficulties in life. These were men who had faced challenges. In fact, they displayed their loyalty to David during difficult times. In, in 1 Samuel 22, David has had to flee Saul, who is wanting to kill him. And he escapes to the cave of Adullam that we read about, which is about 12 to 13 miles from Bethlehem, southwest. And we read in verse 2 of, of 2 Samuel 22 that 400 men came to him. 400 men, and it says they were in distress, in debt, and discontented. And they gathered to David. Now, those are not normally the qualifications that we would list if we're posting a job opening for elite military forces. In debt, discontent, and distressed. And yet it was the trials of life that God used to help in part to prepare these men. They were conditioned, the endurance. Thou therefore endure hardness as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. Part of the challenge that Pastor Bowder gave us last Sunday evening of, of facing trials. God uses those in our lives to strengthen us. None of us want that. But that's part of God's training. It says in Proverbs 24.10, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. It's in the heat of the battle that not only is our strength tested, but our character is revealed. And so in, in 1 Samuel 27, we read this band of, of 400 grows to 600, and from that there's this group of 30 that rise to prominence. It's not really the picture that we would expect of, of men who are huddled together in a dark cave of being the mighty men. But they stuck with David through times of challenge. When Saul dies and Israel gathers to David at Hebron to be the king, these are the men who are with him. And that's the list we find in, in 1 Chronicles 11. But David came to power in part because of Saul's disobedience. It says at the end of chapter 10 of 1 Chronicles that, da that Saul was killed by the Philistines at Mount Gilboa for the un his unfaithfulness which he had committed against the Lord because he did not keep the word of the Lord and because he had consulted the medium for guidance. He did not inquire of the Lord, therefore he killed him and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. 
Saul's disobedience shows the dark side of David's obedience. But the third thing that we see is these men were personally committed to serve. These men stood with David when he was anointed. They were faithful in the early conflicts with the Philistines. They, we see that in, in 2 Samuel chapter 5. They stood with him when Absalom attempts a coup to overthrow the government. These men stayed with David. They sided with the king. And folks, we have to understand, if, if you reject the king, you don't get the kingdom. But it takes a personal commitment. If we're going to stand in a wicked world, we have to be personally committed to serve Jesus Christ. It's not enough to say, well, that was my parents' faith. Faith of our fathers is a great example. It's a great influence. But it has to be our faith. It can't just be your father's faith or your family's faith or your spouse's faith. It has to be your faith. And if we're going to be mighty for Christ, we have to have that commitment. So have you surrendered to Christ? Because if we're not surrendered, we're not going to be a man of God. So what can we learn from these men? I think there are several points that we can glean from their examples. To be a spiritually mighty man, first of all, you must be a man of godly courage. We see that in chapter 8. We see that with this one individual who is mentioned there. Joshabeth, the or as his name, or Josabim, as his name is given in First Chronicles, also known as uh, Adenai. He's, he's, he's a man who had courage. He, we don't get a lot of details, but what we see is he, he fought a great victory and he killed 800 men at one time. And this was without modern weaponry. This was a man who, I mean, this very statement speaks of tremendous courage. That Joseph Beam was a man who was a mighty man. He knew when to fight and he knew how to fight. Folks, that's the need of our day. It's not against individuals, but it is against philosophies. And we need to emulate his courage because there is a spiritual battle. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against philosophies that will do damage to the soul, that will destroy the soul. I mean, do we understand our world has an agenda for our souls and the souls of our children? So we need fathers who can recognize the foe and stand on biblical truth in a way that will honor God and, and unite their children's hearts to them. I mean, let me, let me just give you a recent example of what we see in our culture. The Arizona Department of Education website, saw it just the, this month, has a webpage providing, quote, resources for, resources for the LGBTQ plus students, educators, and families. And if you go to that website, they have a place where you can link to a chat page which is, quote, facilitated by folks who care. Care about what? Purity? Righteousness? Biblical manhood, womanhood, morality? I don't think so. In fact, they make it clear that they're there for anybody who's 13 years old and up who is LGBTQ plus or questioning, which is actually redundant if you know what the plus stands for. The LGBTQQIAPP is actually the acronym. And, and the P's don't stand for purity. The acronym stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, questioning, intersex, asexual, aromantic, pansexual, and polysexual. I, I suspect that their inclusivity does not include those who have a biblical view of gender and sexuality. 
that male and female created he them in the image of God. But folks, this is the battle. They're coming after our kids because on that web page, right at the bottom, very evidently, I thought of putting it up on the screen, I decided not to, there's a, there's a quick escape button that if anybody comes in and you don't want them to see, then you just click that and it takes you to the Google search page. And, it, and it's a very quick out. Folks, we need to understand God's established boundaries of sexuality. He condemns sex before marriage, fornication, outside of marriage, adultery, or any form of lustful self-gratification. In fact, Romans 1.26 refers to those vile passions. And Galatians 5 and 1 Corinthians 6 indicate that people who practice such works of the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is a battle for the soul. And we have to be willing to stand with courage because our culture is coming against us. I believe that the cultural Philistines are coming to confuse and capture those who don't have a biblical grasp on definitions of manhood, womanhood, marriage, and sexuality. And so we need mighty men who will stand and cast down, that is refute, destroy the arguments, the lofty opinions that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God and bring into captivity every thought to obey Christ. That's the challenge that we're given in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. Unfortunately, we, we live in a day where too much of our culture, even in the Christian sense, we see a neutered Christianity. That if we were to list their mighty accomplishments, the, probably their greatest accomplishment is they've been nice. We can't be nice against wickedness, against philosophies that wage war on the soul and invite the wrath of God and on all ungodliness and the children of disobedience. Yes, we have to have a spirit that wins our children and others, but we have to realize it is a war. Say, well, what can you do in a wicked world? Well, Joshabim understood that the man of God can have a great victory in spite of human odds. He killed 800 men. Men, we have to be willing to stand for God's cause. Biblical manhood is a spiritual decision. We have to make that commitment. Proverbs tells us foolishness, silliness is the characteristic of childhood. Someone said our problem today is that boys are overmothered and underfathered. I saw a news article this week. It was actually an opinion piece on a news site and said one of the greatest needs in our country and one of the greatest problems is the lack of fathers. And they listed the drug issues, the psychological problems, the emotional and behavioral issues that have come up. We have to understand and and focus, men, we have to step up to the plate. It's hard to be a parent if you act like a junior high kid. Now, I like junior high kids. But it's much harder to deal with adults who act like junior high kids. See, biblical manhood is a spiritual decision because it means we're striving to grow, to emulate in our lives those things that will honor the Lord and recognize our own personal weaknesses and strive to overcome those. You know, it means taking responsibility for our own spiritual maturity and then striving to bring stability and influence others. Do we look at where is our life a mess and what can we do to change? See, what we have to be, understand is we've got to move to maturity and we can't do that if there are pockets of resistance. The takeaway, I would say, from this, this individual, from Adino, is that we need to be willing to eliminate the enemy completely. 
One of the reasons that we sometimes fail to be mighty men is we like sin too much. You know, we, we, want, we have a desire to stop sinning, but it's, it's a little less than our desire to continue sinning. So we've got to be committed to God. We can't just be abhorred by the consequences. We have to be abhorred by the sin. And we'll never be a mighty man if we allow the enemy to have a hold in our lives. It takes courage to destroy the enemy completely. You know, boys take sin lightly. Mighty men take sin seriously and see it as the enemy that has to be eradicated from their lives and then guarded against. Sin always brings suffering. Unfortunately, the suffering isn't restricted to those who sin. You know, you can jump off of a building and you will fall. And realize when you hit, it's, it's going to leave a mark and make a mess. And we can't just say, well, I'll sin and then ask God's forgiveness and not expect to fall. Not expect to have it leave a mark. So are there pockets of sin in your life that you're coddling? Are there areas, sins that you, you want them subdued, but you don't want to slay them? They need to be slayed com completely. A spiritually mighty man must be godly in courage and alleviate and eliminate the enemy. The second thing, though, that I think we can see in this, though, is that to be spiritually mighty, we must be a man of determined devotion. In verses 8 through 10, we have the illustration of Eliezer, the son of Dodo or Dodai as it's, it's listed. He's the second man that's named of these three. And what I find fascinating is it says that he, along with the other three, defied the Philistines when they gathered for battle and the rest of Israel retreated. What an amazing picture. Everybody else takes off. They run, and these guys stand up and taunt the Philistines. I mean, they're trash-talking the Philistines when everybody else took off. The Bible says those who run the race all run, but one receives the prize. So run in such a way that you may win. He, he fought with determination. It's not enough to just begin. We have to continue. Don't quit. You know, sometimes it's easier to start than it is to finish. Mighty men have to finish. We have to continue. As, as it says in Galatians 5, you ran well. Who hindered you that you should obey the truth? Somebody has said, the test of your character is what it takes, takes to stop you. It says with this individual, his hand stuck to the sword. That's the, the next passage here. And it says he was weary. His hand was weary and it stuck to the sword. I, I think he had muscle cramps. I think when he got done, he had to pry his fingers off of the sword. He was tired, but he didn't quit. And what we see is that we have to persist in spite of weariness and loneliness. James 5.11 says, We count them happy who endure. I wonder if one of the reasons that we have so many unhappy Christians today is the lack of endurance. Lack of determination to finish their course with joy. You know, sometimes you find yourself standing alone. Everybody else left and these three men are alone and then you find Eliezer all by himself, but the others weren't in the vicinity. You know, Elijah faced this. He said, I'm the only one left. Or said, no, there are others. But he felt very alone. Do you ever feel alone and standing for the Lord? Don't quit. Understand there's going to be battles. 
But we sing, though no one join me, still I will follow. No turning back. And notice in verse 10 it says that when the victory came, the other people returned. Yes, they returned to the plunder, but courage is contagious. These examples are given to us in Scripture to encourage us. And we see that here. The third one that we see, though, is we find a man who will stand firm. Mighty men, those who are mighty spiritually, have to be willing to stand firm. Shama is such a man. Says he, he is the one who held a piece of ground full of lentils. Maybe barley or beans. I mean, he's, he's, he's standing in a vegetable patch. And, and the, the, the Philistines attack. And everybody else flees, but not Shama. He stands in this field. Now, why would it matter? I mean, it's vegetables. We don't know where it was. When we were in Israel, we didn't say, oh, we're going to stop by and see the lentil field. Like, no, that wasn't our, on our itinerary. And if it was, I would have probably told our guide, let's just keep driving. We can take a picture out the window. You know, seeing a bean patch, you've seen them all. Why did it matter? Because this was land that God gave to Israel. This was God's land. Folks, understand a mighty man will have to draw lines and defend boundaries. Now, this takes discernment. In our culture, we've got to draw lines. And it takes discernment because if you draw them too wide, you're going to compromise with sin. If you draw them too tight, you're going to discourage others by your authoritarian and legalistic and moralistic approach. It, all, it becomes all about the boundary. No, we have to see the bigger picture. What is he fighting for? And that takes wisdom. That takes discernment because we have to live by principle rather than by simply a checklist. But those who fail to grow in discernment are going to tend to rely on a system. Give me the list. And then I can determine my spirituality. No, that's not how it happens. You have to say, what am I fighting for for the glory of God? and defend the boundaries for his glory and do battle for God's cause to advance his holiness. As Joshua said, choose you this day who you will serve. And then he drew the line in the Palestinian sand. He said, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Though no one join me, he said, this is where I stand. We need to hold the ground for the sake of those who come after us. Folks, sometimes there are battles that we fight and say, well, I don't know if I'm going to win. Maybe not, but I'm going to hold the ground for those who come behind us. As a church, there are times we have to say, you know what, we're going to stand here. Well, the culture, the society, others are going other directions. That's fine. I don't have to answer to God for them. I have to answer for me. And we're going to hold the ground for those who come. But do you ever feel like your service for the Lord doesn't really mean much? Does it really amount to a hill of beans? He's fighting for a bean field, a lentil field for the glory of God. We might not see ultimate victory, but we can hold the ground for those who come after us and be faithful. God's battle plan is bigger than our life. Therefore, we need to stand firm and hold the ground. The fourth thing that we see, though, for a spiritually minded man, he must be a man who stays close to the Lord. We have an interesting picture in verse, beginning in verse 13, and, I, and I've put Abishai's name on it. 
We don't know for sure that he was one of these three. Some commentators believe he was, others disagree. But I think he, he illustrates the passion, the passionate devotion that is laid out in these verses. Sometimes to a fault. Abishai's dedication to David was such that that when David was fleeing from Saul and he was hiding, he asked for a volunteer who would join him because he was going to sneak behind enemy lines and it was Abishai who said, I'll go with you. And they get behind enemy lines and they come to Saul who's asleep and Abishai says, let me kill him. God's delivered Saul into your hand. You're supposed to be the king. I'll take care of him. This is God's doing. And David had to say, no, we're not doing that. We're not going there. We're not, we're, we'll do this in God's time. David was a man who waited on the Lord. But Abishai had the, the passionate devotion. He said, let me take care of him now. When David became king, Abishai commanded a third of David's army. And at one point he killed, with his army, 18,000 Edomites. We read that in 1 Chronicles 18. So, so this was a man who was dedicated. And we, we see the situation described. Look again at verse 13. I want us to look at these verses again because I'm not going to read all of it, but notice what's happening here. The three of the 30 men went down at harvest time. And David is at the cave of Agilom. Now, that tells us a couple of things. One, because it's harvest time, there's no rain. The cisterns are dry. The, the need for water is going to be significant. And David is hiding in a cave that's about 12 miles southwest of Bethlehem. And I think at this point, David is having one of those I-don't-want-to-grow-up moments. He's longing for the good old days when he could just be on the hills of Bethlehem, maybe tending sheep and going, and, and he remembers the well by the gate, and he says, oh, if I could just have a drink of water from that well. You know, I remember back then when life was left less complicated, when I wasn't getting pressed and pressured on every side, and he looks back and, and he says, you know, if, if I could just have a drink of that water. You know, if I, if I could just get that drink, I remember how refreshing it was when I was a boy, and, and oh, it just brings back good memories. And three of David's men hear that wish. It wasn't a command. It wasn't a dictate. It was just, I wish I could have that. And they said, we're going to take care of it. They made the 25-mile round trip. They fought through enemy lines. They drew water out of a well, put it into a leather canteen, and then brought it back to David. And that's what they did. And notice what David does. He's not going to indulge in that luxury. Instead, he pours it out to the Lord. Why would he do that? Because what we see, and really the next thing that we see, is that rather than revealing, reveling in their devotion to him, he directs their attention to God. He says, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. He's not going to drink of it. This was not a waste. His pouring it out was an act of worship. He recognized their devotion. And what we see here is that we need to endeavor to know the Lord's desires, not just His demands. That's what these men are doing in this passage. They are fulfilling David's desire. See, a mighty man's going to keep his focus on God. 
in an endeavor to know the Lord's desire. If you can go to the next screen, I believe that's what that... This is where he was. This was that, that blue arrow is pointing to where it was and now going up to Bethlehem, which is circled there. They've made this battle, this trek, because of the desire that David had. And so to do that, why? Because they knew his heart's longing. David didn't commission them to fight. Folks, do we know the Lord's desire? One of the struggles we face in our Christian culture today is I, I hear people say, well, show me chapter and verse that I can't do something. Do we know the holiness of God? Do you know the heart of Christ? May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day. If I, if I know the mind of Christ, then I'm going to strive to stay close to him. As, as these men, as David said, I'm, this, this was their life. They're putting their life in jeopardy for water from my boyhood. These were mighty men. What they did was they endeavored to know the Lord's desires, not just his demands. Is that our heart? We say, Lord, how can I please you? To do that, you have to remain close to him. It says in the Psalms, I will, he says, I will instruct you and teach you and guide you with my eye. Well, if somebody's going to guide us with their eye, that means we have to have our eyes on them. You know, as a parent, sometimes we give our children guidance with our eyes. The Lord's promised he'll do that for us. But if they're not looking at us or we're not looking at him, then we miss the message. These men had such a devotion to David that they said, look, if that's what you want, we're going to do it. They put their life's, lives on the line to do this. Their actions were not required, they weren't commanded, but their commitment was such they wanted to fulfill their leader's desires, not just his demands. It tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, no one entangled in the affairs, uh, no one engaged in warfare will entangle himself in the affairs of this life. Why? Because he wants to please the one who's enlisted him to be a soldier. Stay close to the Lord that we can please him. The fifth thing that we see in this passage, though, is we find a man known for loyalty. That we must show loyalty to the true king if we're going to be a mighty man spiritually. This man fascinates me. His name is Beniah. Let's look at these, these verses together. We, we didn't read this earlier, but I want us to see that, that Beniah is a unique individual. As, as, look at it, verse 20. It says, Beniah was the son of Jechadiah the son of valiant man of Kabziel. Now, he comes from, he comes from a, a line of valiant men. I mean, there's, there's a God, godly heritage. He did many deeds, but look what it says. He killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He had also gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. And he killed an Egyptian, of spect a spectacular man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, so he went down with him, to him with a staff and wrested the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. And so we're seeing this battle taking place. It says, these things did Beniah, the son of Jechadiah. He's won a name among the mighty men. He wasn't in the top three. But this guy's impressive. I mean, he, he killed two lion-like Moabites. That, was, that speaks of, these are, these are men of character, of courage, of, of, of viciousness. And he took them out. He was fearless. And, and then he killed a lion in a pit, maybe a cistern, on a snowy day. 
I mean, all of those details are interesting and significant. Killing a lion, doing it in a pit, and then doing it in the snow, that is a tough situation. I grew up in Michigan. And then I ministered in Maine. I've, I've been around snow for a good portion of my life. And one of the things I remember growing up was at the end of our street, there was a Wesleyan church. And in the winter, when they would plow their, their parking lot, they would pile up the snow. Now, I thought that was great as a kid. When I pastored in Maine and we had to pay a front-end loader to come and move it, and I'm thinking, I'm paying hundreds of dollars for something that will melt, that was frustrating. But as a kid, it was great because they would, they would get these massive piles of snow and we would go down there and we'd play king of the mountain. And the goal was to get the top, to the top of that pile of snow and take control and then keep everybody else off of it. And so you'd fight your way up and what I found is you had to have solid footing. If you could get up there and get your feet planted then you had a tremendous example because when anybody else came, you, you had both the position and the leverage to let them take a trip down the mountain. But if you didn't have good footing, you were in trouble. And it didn't take much to knock you off balance. Now for us, it was simply a tumble in the snow, maybe some snow down your back, maybe some bruises or some minor cuts because of the frozen ice chunks that were in this pile. For Benaiah, this was a death match. He's fighting a lion in a pit. He doesn't have an up-top position on a snowy day. He's got a bad adversary in a bad place under bad conditions, and he prevails. I'd love to know more about this story. And then he's also skilled in hand-to-hand combat. He takes on a muscular Egyptian who stood about seven and a half feet tall. The Egyptian has a spear and he's got a staff. I mean, he comes at him with a piece of wood, a club, and this guy's got a spear. And so Benaiah decides, I'll take his spear. And he takes the spear from him and he kills him with it. It's no wonder that David chooses him to be his bodyguard. That's what we find in verse 22. He becomes David's secret service protection. But it's not just that he was willing to fight for David. This was a man who lived by biblical principle. And what I want us to understand is if we're going to take the stand, we have to live a life based on principle instead of pleasing people. Yes, he served David, but he, he was looking at who God had as the king. Benaiah was committed to a cause, not just to the king. David comes to the end of his life. And, and God's plan is for Solomon to succeed him to the throne. But one of David's other sons, Adonijah, decides he wants to be the king. And he begins maneuvering even before David dies to take over the throne. And, and word comes to David. David steps in and he announces that, that he's setting up Solomon as king. And then, Sol, then when Solomon is king, Adonijah continues to work and he, he goes to Bathsheba, Solomon's mom, and tries to manipulate the situation to get in a position where the throne would come to him. Now, I, I think for us, again, as fathers, there's a lesson here. One of the problems with Adonijah was he was an ambitious, strong-willed man, and unfortunately, David failed to rein him in when he was young. You know, dads, if you have a strong-willed child, there's nothing wrong with that. You want that will to stand on principle, but you have to direct it. You can't let them be the ones directing where they're going. 
Somebody has made this statement. There, there can be a false tenderness of parents toward their children which abdicates the responsibility to discipline and shape the characters of those whom God has entrusted to them. Unfortunately, David didn't direct Adonijah. And so when he tries to take over the throne, Solomon comes to Benaiah and he says, you need to go and take him out. And Benaiah was a man who served on principle. And we find Adonai, uh, that Benaiah is the one who kills Adonijah in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 25. At the direction of the king because he was trying to usurp the throne. Benaiah didn't just serve David. He served God's man in that position. You know, it takes wisdom to live by principle. It takes order in your life to grow in wisdom. It means learning the patterns of life and acting consistently with those patterns. That, that wisdom means that we're skilled in practical life choices. It means living as God intended. You know, sometimes we would rather just kind of go with an emotionalism and say, well, God led me to do this. Well, what did God tell you to do? That actually takes more work. And folks, we need to understand that we can become spiritual in our direction right away, but it takes time to become spiritually mature. That doesn't come overnight. And, and we, you can today commit to be a spiritual person, but to grow in maturity takes time. As Hebrews 5 says, it's those who by reason of use have exercised their senses to discern good and evil. Those who make the right choices on what they know over time, no more. And understanding that, so do we have the courage to press on to the finish, even though we may be tired, discouraged, fearful? Do we live by principle? So what are some takeaways that we can glean from this? And let me very quickly just bullet point a couple of things. First of all, I think we need to ask ourselves, are you personally committed to Christ? Have you trusted Him personally? It's not enough to say it's the faith of our fathers. That's a great starting place. That heritage, that lineage is something to thank God for. That, that understanding of the stewardship of influence is vital, but it has to be your faith says in Daniel 11.32, the people who know their God will be strong and carry out great exploits. Do you know God? Are you growing in that? Have you trusted Him as your personal Savior? Is Christ your Savior? Are you committed to follow Him? Secondly, are you willing to stand firm in the face of opposition? You know, the common denominator with these men is they stood in the face of opposition. They were outnumbered, outmatched, outmaneuvered, they were exhausted, frightened, fatigued, and they fought, and they won, and God gave a victory. Put on the armor the Lord has provided. Be strong in the Lord, and be of good courage. Do we stand? Do you stand? You know, when, when I read these stories, I think, you know, I, I look forward to getting to heaven, and so I can tell them how tough I had it. You know, I had to come to church sometimes when it was 100 degrees. Okay, yeah, the car was air-conditioned and the church was air-conditioned, but, and I'm sure that Benaiah and Adonai, and all, they're going to stop and listen to me. Like, you know, really, when we put in perspective what we face, well, do we understand? I'm sure Eliezer said, oh, man, you had it rough. No, no I want to hear their stories. Or as we sing, must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease? 
while others fought to win the prize, sailed through bloody seas. Who? Benaiah, Eliezer. These 37 men, most of them, we don't even know their stories. But God knew them, and he's recorded them for us. We count them blessed who endure. Sometimes our battle in sin is dealt what comes out in Hebrews 12.4. You have not resisted unto bloodshed, striving against sin. As mighty men, we've got to be willing to stand up and, and face opposition. And the third thing is, are you, willing, are, are you serving others to advance the cause of Christ? Courage is contagious. That we would encourage others and be reminded of that. I need to be reminded of this. You know, we're celebrating Father's Day. I acquired my Father's Day present in Israel. There was a man who came to our hotel and he would, he would take orders to make jewelry. And, and I'm wearing it today, but you can't see it, so we put it up on the screen. But it's a reminder for me. What does it say? It's a Hebrew phrase that occurs eight times in the Old Testament, four times in Joshua 1. It says, be strong and courageous. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of a good courage. Don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The verse I didn't include for the sake of space, but you know, focused on knowing the, the word of God. And we read that there, and this is a reminder for me, because we live in a wicked world. Be strong and courageous. It's not enough to exist as Christians. We need to strive to be mighty men for Jesus Christ, mighty men and women for Christ, and then encourage our young people that they too would live for Christ, that we would be strong in the Lord and be of good courage. We can do that when He is our Savior. Let's bow.